you know, I keep on saying that we definitely don't need more brands to do more stuff mm-hmm. from the same. We need more and more and more brands to do better. And welcome to the Age of Plastic podcast. I am your trying to be more sustainable host, Andrea Fox. This is an environmental podcast for anyone who's ever wondered why is the planet getting hotter and wanted to do something about it. Hope you've enjoyed the start of the series so far. If you missed the last episode, we talked making new PPE out of old PPE. Coming up on this series, if you've ever wondered about sustainable jewellery, we're going to cover that. Actually, biodegradable single-use materials and the most amazing new product, which will replace all plastic in future mark my words now if you have an eco life hack to share a guest suggestion or a comment i'd love to do your shout outs we've got more on the way on this episode and you can find out how to contact me wherever you are listening right now now today's guest she's in fashion i am chatting to the lovely laura nikwova jean founder of laura jean the brand based in britain now they are a contemporary women's wear label that focuses on attention to detail quality and craftsmanship so that the pieces are timeless and versatile now notice how i didn't say sustainable fashion brand we get into that in the chat each garment's produced through conscious sourcing though with care about the environment and workers at the forefront and basically laura only works with suppliers who reflect her own values some brilliant quotes from laura herself waste is a design flaw Mm, love that and sustainability is a state of mind i'm going to be putting those on the background of my phone today. Now coming up in our chat we talk fashion pollution, pushing the conversation in sustainability and fashion from talking to action and how our vegetables from the supermarket could come wrapped in silk in future. Yes really. Now during Fashion Revolution Week I read something that Laura had written for the Live Frankly publication. You can find that linked in the show notes and it was the only thing I really saw that week that really seemed to be pushing the conversation about fashion and sustainability forward. We connected on social media and I'm so pleased that we got some time to chat with her. This is the founder of Laura Jean chatting to me for the Age of Plastic podcast. Thank you so much for chatting to me today. Hello. Hello. Hi. Thank you so much for having me as well. I'm really excited to speak to you. Same. Same. Likewise. (laughs) I'm very excited to speak to you as well. Now, we connected like so many people do over social media um, not that long ago. I'd known that you'd worked with the brilliant Aja Barber, so I was aware of your brand. But then you wrote this amazing piece for Live Frankly during Fashion Week. And it was the one thing that I think really pushed the conversation on. And I'm going to link to it in the show notes. But one of these quotes that stood out for me from what you said was, we need to stop asking who made my clothes and start asking who makes profit from my clothes. So centering on that, that sort of how the conversation started between us, where do you think the fashion industry is at right now oh it's a it's a really tough question I have to say because uh I guess you know it's always about perspective and it's always about how you see things from your own perspective but also I personally always try to be very objective when I talk about these things because I'm aware that it's one thing to view the industry from the perspective of a small brand like me and us uh and you know, me, <laughs> obviously smaller brand. Uh, and then it's a completely different thing to look at it from respect, the perspective of a corporation or a bigger company which has responsibility to shareholders. You know, it, it's very different if uh, if you look at it from an independent perspective or, um, you know, corporate one. But I do think that objectively, we are at the sort of like a breaking point where we really need to either start doing things um, and, and just drop a little bit of the of the talks 
either we are facing not a very bright future, let me put it that way, <laughs> because unfortunately we are uh, indeed one of the most needlessly polluting industries out there. It can be much better, we can do much better, but unfortunately there are many older structures, systems, and, and uh, you know processes, which are sort of ingrained in the whole supply chain. And it's, as much as I understand, it's difficult to redo them and remake them and reinvent them. I think we're really at this, um, like I said, breaking point where, where we need to start doing things. Because, um, you know, if you just look at the stats, things are grim, <laughs> you know, it's very simple. Like, this is not an opinion. This is just simple facts. I'm not making this up. Like, um, things are not looking bright for, uh, especially from the perspective of supply chain, because I feel like there is a constant, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about sustainability and progress and how we can do things better, but it's always sort of like um, from the perspective of, you know, selling, marketing, communicating, rather than the actual things we can do in the supply chain to change things. And this was actually the reason behind the the, the article, and I guess because it was spontaneous, it was very honest and, you know, it came out kind of authentic, I guess. It completely did. And, you know, I'd watched so many things during that Fashion Revolution week. And and it wasn't until I read your article, I was like, yeah, we kind of haven't pushed the conversation on, though. We see a lot of, like you say, a lot of marketing about sustainability. But maybe the more difficult thing of, you know, those supply chains really needs to be. And that's the kind of unsexy stuff that doesn't, you know, happen in marketing. But COVID-19 was a bit of a, a leveler. So it's sort of strange in a way that fashion hasn't really used that to to get to where it needs to be um, and I suppose where would with your experience running the brand what do you sort of see behind the scenes as the as the big sort of like supply chain issues that need to be sorted out where fashion needs to get to um, so I think if you actually talk to anyone who is more involved in the supply chain side regardless if it's a, an owner or just like a supply chain manager or someone like a technician working in it uh, you'll probably hear the same thing more or less um, and and this is just simply because you know the major issues are within the supply chain like I'm not saying there is no issues in, in, in the whole value chain, but the major issues, especially concerning sustainability, are in the supply chain because obviously this is where we, you know, source things, materials and, uh, you know, garment workers or, or people working in it. So um, I feel like um, from my experience, my experience is probably very diverse than most of the people you will talk to around here simply because I come uh, from a country where garment making is sort of like a, you know, traditional craft um, that's been going on for hundreds of years. Yes, and which and country? Which country is this? Bulgaria. Bulgaria. I don't know you. Bulgaria. Bulgaria. Yeah. Bulgaria, which is the second biggest manufacturer in Europe, actually. After wow. Romania, it's, it's been you know the Eastern European bloc has always been a very um, I don't know. Someone said murky waters when it comes to garment making, and it's and it's true. You know, it's always been like. I suppose it's very connected to the fact that it's so close and we kind of perceive that, you know, um, it's under the European laws and regulations, but it's not, we can come to that later on. But my, my anyway, my point is I'm much closer to the supply chain than more, much more, um, you know, comparatively to other people. Because 
first of all, I'm coming from there. That's where the label started. You know, um, you have like a direct physical connection to your factories. You visit them more. Then I moved to London, but you know, it's sort of like you start in a way. So it's it's in it's kind of like ingrained again in your you know, in how you do things. Mm. And that's why I usually even say, you know, sustainability is a state of mind because someone from Eastern Europe wouldn't, most probably wouldn't think the same way approaching making manufacturing in comparison to someone in the West. Not because one is good or the other one is bad. It's just simply because one is much closer to the issues, to the practical problems, which are on, you know, occurring on a, on a daily basis. So I suppose from my perspective, things are even grimmer, you know, simply because you see it, you see it yourself. Like you see, you go to the factory, to the factories much more than, than other people, especially smaller brands, because they usually can't afford, you know, the whole traveling back and forth. You know, I still have family in Bulgaria, so I go there quite often. I visit the factories quite often. I know most of those people by their name. And, you know, we've been working for years. So you kind of see how their lives are deteriorating, not improving. And then you also see the other side of the things. And you see all corporations growing, you know, richer and, and, and wealthier. And it feels really like um, sometimes I would even say, just like, what are we doing, yeah. <laughs> you know? And of course, saying all this, I don't, by all means, I don't need to um, just give one example of a, of a country and, and saying, you know, but again, this is not my opinion, it's statistics. If you yeah. look at the statistics and how things are, pretty much everywhere where garments are made, Bangladesh, India, you know, Romania, Bulgaria, doesn't matter, things are not improving. And on the other side of things, if you actually look at, you know, um, pretty much anyone big out there, a corporation, things are improving. Of course, they do have some flops, you know, in, in, in their revenues, like it's quite normal. This is business. This is business environment. But if you look at, you know, um, the, the line, the linear kind of growth, it's Profit. always... Yeah. yeah, profit wise, they're they're increasing their value, they're increasing and and things go worse and worse and worse for, for government workers. So I think one of the major things that we need to start with is is people, you know. We all talk about sustainability constantly, and that's one of the major pillars. You can't, it doesn't matter how many amazing recycled recycled or you know biodegradable fabrics you have, if you don't honor the people behind this. I feel like you don't have nothing yeah. and, and uh, it's not, you know, it's not sustainable because human labor should be in front of everything else. Yeah. And that's one of the things we've talked about before. Um, and in your experience, you know, going back to Bulgaria, this is a skilled job. Like I, I remember saying to you, we think of unskilled labor in inverted commas yeah. as, as people going out and picking fruit and veg in the fields here. If you've ever seen a video of it, it's so difficult. I couldn't do it. Making clothes is skillful, but we buy so much here and seem to not value any of it. And if there's no value in it and the people who are making those clothes aren't getting paid properly, then there's actually no future labor for the fashion industry in your opinion right yeah that's that's uh, that's a big um that's a big discussion and this is one of the things why i was sort of inspired to put this article in in uh, you know 
my thoughts into words because what I'm saying as well is, you know, there is this great disconnect which I'm talking about. And, and even I realize that even for me, there is a sign of a disconnect because I am certainly someone who sells a product in the West but makes it in the East. It's just for me, the only difference is that I actually see the making much closer. But, um, you know, I feel like the major issue is there, is within the disconnect. Many people don't know how much labor is involved in any garment whatsoever, even like in a simple t-shirt, you know, people don't realize how much labor there is behind this. And um, quite often because of the volumes in, in you know, big uh, garment manufacturers like, um, like Bangladesh, for instance, you know, quite often the processes are very much divided into different, um, like under process kind of thing. You have, let's say someone making a sleeve, someone else making a body, someone else making a color, someone else ironing, you know, all processes are sort of like break down to different, um, uh, you know, different under processes. But this is not the case in, you know, smaller garment manufacturers. And it, there is a lot of labor, which is not only skilled, it takes years to be trained in this. But of course, if you, on the other side of the value chain, you see something that costs you 10 pounds, 15 pounds, you know, 20 pounds, it doesn't matter. How would anyone see? Mm. And this is, I feel like the first major disconnect between what's the reality and what's, you know, what we see from it. Uh, and, and this is where I sort of like criticize all those questions because, you know, people, the general public, don't know much about supply chain and i for one am sort of doubtful that they need to know because me as a customer i don't think i would be interested to understand how my computer is made you know but i want to know that my computer is made from people who are paid decent wages and who are you know living decent lives and that's pretty much what I need to know. So I don't know if transparency is enough already. Seeing all the, you know, just, just calling out for transparency is not enough. It's, it's the start. It's a good base where we actually understand how things are. But I really don't think, you know, um, perpetuating questioning, you know, how supply chain functions is going to lead us anywhere. It's just because it's confusing. Most people don't understand that and they don't need to. And, you know, again, I'm talking about customers. Yeah. So um, I just I just feel like this great disconnect needs to find a way to reconnect. So sort of like we as an industry need to reconnect to the people that are behind our clothes. And, and I'm not talking only about garment technicians. I'm talking about pretty much everything which is in the supply chain. You know, try and understand where our fabrics are made, like source better, do better, pay better, like pretty much, yeah. you know, improve the way our supply chain functions. And of course, I'm not, uh, I'm really not suggesting that people shouldn't ask and shouldn't call for transparency. What I'm saying is that the call for transparency didn't lead us nowhere, you know, and there was like, I mean, quite prominent examples of how really big brands, which we know are, you know, quite good at greenwashing have become the best, you know, in, in transparency index or something like that with the fashion revolution. Um, so I do feel like 
this is one of the things, reconnecting to the supply chain from the perspective of brands is one of the first steps that can lead us to improving how our supply chain functions. Yeah, and we've touched on it before when we've spoken about this, but not everybody has the time to go in depth, to go and like work out what the transparency and the sustainability of, of that brand is. And also, that puts it quite back on the consumer, doesn't it? What's your thoughts exactly. on that? Exactly, and this is my major problem with that, you know, because like I said, I as a consumer, I don't feel like I should understand the supply chain of a computer or, you know, a telephone or anything like that. Of course, you know, I'm not saying we shouldn't be aware of certain things, but I do feel like it's a bit of a, you know, it's a bit ironic to ask people to be responsible for something that businesses do. Um, and maybe ironic is not the proper word. I find it ironic because it's it's a catch-22. Like, what if you know? What if you, as, as someone who works in broadcasting or, or uh, you know, advertising, well, it doesn't matter who you are, understand how you know how i make my clothes so what you don't have access to anything that i do you can't regulate me because i as a business whoever am i i'm i'm regulated by governments by by policies by regulations you know um you can't really do much so i'm really failing to understand what is the point of this and as much as i appreciate campaigning and bringing awareness to the general audience, I feel like it's about time that we move forward, you know? It's not, obviously it's not helping because again, if you look at the stats, things are not improving for garment workers. Things are not improving in terms of like materials. Yes, of course, we do have more awareness. You are much more aware that your garment might be done by someone who is being abused on the other end of the world. But what is it that you can do? Maybe you can, you know, opt out and stop buying from me or from the company, but that's pretty much it. And, and you know, most of those companies have enormous budgets. They have a very big power to advertise slash greenwash, you know, and, and sort of like, I mean, communicate things which are not there. And again, as much as we are aware of that, are we really? Because my feeling is that we stay in this eco chamber bubble of, you know, sustainability, passionate people that we want the things to go better and, and improve everything. But I do feel like it's becoming a bubble more and more because yeah. people just don't, people just don't, you know, um, especially if we, if we start pointing fingers, I don't feel like this is helping and this is going anywhere because we feel guilty enough for many other things. So, <laughs> you know, one more in the chain, I don't think it's going to help. Honestly, I really, I really have a, a, a serious issue myself uh, in particular with, with, um, brands and businesses and anyone out there who is blaming the consumer for any of that. Yeah, and, and that is the worry, isn't it, with all of this echo chambers? And I feel guilty about everything now. I mean, I feel guilty about the amount of fish I eat and the amount of food clothes in my closet and all this kind of stuff. But your article does sort of put forward ideas to these brands. And, and like you say, things aren't getting better. They're not getting better for garment workers. It's not getting better for the planet. We're still creating so many garments. And we see the likes of ASOS and H&M just making more and more profits during the pandemic. And I suppose really what what you've suggested that they need to do is kind of look at their business model, right? Yep, yep. I do feel like it's about time that we start doing. Stop talking that yeah. much. 
and start doing. And again, uh, I don't say this to blame people because I really do appreciate the work of everyone in there. It's thousands of individuals trying to do stuff. But we are thousands of individuals and there are millions and millions of individuals, if not billions, you know. So you can't, you can't really touch someone who is going to go and buy anything from Primark tomorrow by this complex messages and this complex um, do all this work sort of, go and find yeah, out exactly. about all this yeah guilty sort of mm. messaging saying oh but you shouldn't buy and, should. and a lot of people are very confused in between those things and what they do instead of you know trying to understand it's just they opt out completely and i've seen that quite often so i feel mm. like it's really about time we as we as an industry look at our own processes and try and, and improve our own operations within and then basically, you know, elevate the niche that we're working in or just sort of like together move forward. And I know it's much easier done, said than done, but the fact that, you know, we as a small business managed to get traction and managed to get some of those things and ideas into place and they're actually working means that I'm not wrong. Mm. And it's pretty much about, you know, scale, because just just for the sake of example, last year we did this Black Friday thing where we essentially said, OK, what if we instead of opt out again and stay in this pedestal where we say, oh, but, you know, we're not going to push. Cons- yeah, we're not going to push consumption more and more and more. We just kind of tweak this messaging and, and find a way to actually benefit from it. Um, whilst all these corporations are making billions and billions of pounds just for a couple of days. And what we did is actually said, uh, okay, we're going to give you a discount, but you know, we're going to basically split the discount with the garment workers. So for instance, if you get 20% of your dress or something, uh, we're going to give 10% to uh, 10% of that money to the garment workers and, and then we're going to give 10% to you. And it kind of worked, you know, it's it, it, it kind of like at that scale, at that, you know, small sort of um, business, it did work. We had a, a very good success, not just, you know, monetary success, but also like awareness and new customer base and all of those things. And I just imagine what if we all, like, you know, all these brands talking about sustainability have opt-in into something like this yeah you know, can you imagine the difference this is going to make to the garment workers and it doesn't have to be exactly the same for everyone it can be tweaked and and you know this is pretty much where creative power of how you sell how you make comes in yeah so i do feel like um we need to stop talking that much and start thinking about how do we do these things in practice in reality how do we solve and tackle all of those daily issues because we can't just sit in in this empty space where we say but this is a problem and this is a problem and this is a problem and then no one fixed this problem yeah obviously it's not it's not how things will get better yeah, you're such a doer, aren't you? I feel like we, and I suppose because we're both sort of in this space or, you know, I've been learning from this space. You've been working in this for over a decade now in the fashion industry and I've been learning so much through doing this podcast. But yeah, it's, we're sort of, well, everyone knows what the problems are now and we really yeah. need to work on those solutions. And that thing you've just said is is really like bringing that cooperative 
relationship, you know, bringing the consumer along with the garment worker. And, and that's kind of, instead of having this sort of separation and we hear all about these big brands that owe so much to the factories, one of the other ideas about changing the business model, and I know this is slightly in-depth and, and more brand-focused, some of the suggestions you've made in this lovely article, but it's about partnering partnering with those factories and and making this all a bit more of a collaborative effort right and I think that's really it's really innovative yeah I feel like this is one of the you know I just just before we we started talking I actually had a, a little chat with a friend of mine a colleague that helps businesses with their sustainable um agenda and and which is something you do to other brands as well, don't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm more of a supply chain. I think she's more of a, you know, just general concept. And uh, we currently have an ongoing campaign with um, one uh, non-profit organization with ha- which essentially has created something I feel it's amazing. And it's another example of how we can actually change things. So these guys, um, I, I don't know if it's allowed, but I'm going to say the name and then you can, you know. Um, don't worry, I won't bleep it out. <laughs> Yeah, okay, no, if you want, you can, but uh, it's called the Give Your, Give Your Best UK, and they essentially provide this platform to refugee women and, uh, you know, people, like in general, people uh, seeking asylum in the UK um, by providing them gifts from, you know, um, clothes as a gift. So they can essentially shop for free. And these clothes are gifted by other women. So for instance, your pre-loved clothing can go on there. You just upload it and another woman, which is in need right now, choose some of your clothes Mm. because she has a similar style or similar size or, you know, and I think it's really empowering and amazing. And we've started the campaign with them where we incentivize people to give, you know, um, to to gift their pre-loved clothing and we give them sort of like gifts on the back and discounts and stuff. But what my point was that this um, colleague of mine get in touch for another brand which is interested to do that. And and she was quite amazed when I said, I don't mind sharing all the messages. We can join together because it's easy to get to the press and easy to get the whole, you know, cause and idea out there when we have more. And you know what? People are usually stunned when I say this. People are usually stunned when I ask them, let's do this together. And for me, it's it's very um, sort of, it's a red signal because we say we are all in this together. We say we all work to make this better, but then we are still functioning. And this old idea about competition Mm. where we're all, you know, and I'm not saying healthy competition is not, you know, it's not valid. We are functioning in the in the systems of capitalism. So obviously competition is, is something very important. But I'm saying that in some of those things, which no one kind of touches in a way, um, I feel like we should we should get together. Yeah. I do feel like for some of those really important things is we need to innovate and get together because, you know, what's the difference between one doing it and another 10 doing it big difference you know yeah <laughs> and, and i feel that's one of the other problems i can see all the time constantly you know we just kind of refuse to share ideas and innovation and i just don't understand why because as much as i understand competition i also have seen for years how when you elevate the niche you're functioning in it it, it does great for everyone yeah. You know, if if sustainable brands are out there more and more, if the press is helping us more and more, 
then people will see our names more. And this is one of the reasons why I, I constantly, especially lately, ask influencers and culture shapers, you know, just take 10% of your time and give it to brands that you feel. Yeah, uplift them. Yeah. You can, you can, you know, uplift and just work together, hold them accountable, make profits together. No problem. I'm not suggesting anyone should do, you know, non-profit work all the time. Yeah. What I'm suggesting is if we are saying we are all about to do something and change the way this industry functions, we kind of need to do it together. Because if we stand alone as individuals and in, more like separate entities, I don't think we stand a chance. You know, yeah. H&M is, is sitting on 4.3 billion worth of stock wow. and they're experiencing economic growth. How do you find that? In a, in a pandemic as well. Exactly. How yeah. do you find that, you know? Yeah. It's like you say, so, like, you, you could change, like, one factory and one brand, yeah. but it re- we really need to sort of uh, cross the floor and yeah, do it together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. I don't see any other way, honestly. I, I really don't think any one of us. And historically, if you look at the whole, you know, even fast fashion didn't came alone. They were a lot of them, you know. So someone started and then... Yes, and everyone did. Yeah, yeah, that's such a good point. You know, this is pretty much how economic trends are functioning. It's all tied in with, you know, cultural trends and consumption, consumers' minds and perceptions. And it's just all very much tied in together. It's buyer's behavior, isn't it? So you see someone responds to something and then you kind of like, you know, Pretty much every entrepreneur out there is thinking in the same way. And that's why I'm failing to understand why we are so defensive when it comes to joining together, even in certain things, you know. I I honestly don't feel this is a competition which is going to take anything away from us. I really do feel like this is a competition that's going to help us improve how we function. And I really don't see how, just for the sake of example again, you know, imagine if me and other three brands are doing the same campaign and we all mention together. Do you really believe that their customers is going to come and buy more from me? Because it doesn't make sense. Yeah. You know, I feel like, you know, especially with, with smaller businesses, customers are much more devoted. They're much more, you know, they're much more um, kind of like your partners rather than just customers. So mm-hmm. I just don't understand the defensiveness of, of business as well. Mm-hmm. Not that the point where we see things are really, you know, break to a breaking point yeah. where we have to do something. Yeah, completely. And I think that competition point reminds me of something else I wanted to ask you about. Like, what is your opinion of the sort of the good brand and the bad brand? Do you think we're sort of past bashing brands for greenwashing as well? Yes, um, not entirely. I would, I would definitely say, uh, you know, um, I do feel like the big brands, especially the fast fashion brands, are trying to dominate a conversation, and and uh, you know, in that sense, and they they became really good in greenwashing because they can't essentially they can't change change their business model. They have to cease to exist or reinvent entirely how they function, which is so going to take years be, and loads of money, years, yeah. and it's going to cost a lot. So they just became better at greenwashing, and we know that. But mm. also, you know, um, I agree that 
this needs to be a conversation that it needs to be out there it needs to happen but my my personal problem as someone understanding how how things function especially in the supply chain is that this is the only thing i see there is nothing else you know and i feel like this is the major problem because if again if you know, imagine just all of those people having this conversation, just take 10% out of this conversation and start pushing brands who are actually doing things good. Because, you know, I keep on saying that we definitely don't need more brands to do more stuff mm-hmm. from the same. We need more, we need much more, more and more and more brands to do better. Yeah. Yeah. Because how do you, let's say just for, you know, utopian kind of perspective but let's say tomorrow you don't have all the fast fashion brands they just cease to exist something happens where are these people buying everything from mm-hmm. what happens you know what happens to the people working in the supply chain what happens what's the transition for those people mm-hmm. and we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people we're yeah. not talking about you know 100 people or something what happens like th- does anyone really ask this question does anyone have this, you know, thought process where you actually start looking for, okay, I call these guys out and let's say they stop existing or they change entirely. What happens when they let out 10,000 people who are out of work? What happens if we don't have this basic t-shirt sold by Zara for five pounds? Who is going to make it? Who, who will, okay, we're going to pay more, but who's going to make it? And this is where, where I feel like a lot of people fail to see through that, you know, we kind of left out the people who can actually change things. I constantly see on social media and even in professional groups, this bashing, like you call it, because it's true, you know, and, and I don't know if you even like see the other, but pretty much every brand out there is, is the bad guy, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> it's kind of like the bad and ugly. And then, um, of course, when you correct people and you tell them, but you know what, not all brands are bad. Uh, they're like, yeah, of course, but you know what we mean? No, I don't know what you mean. Mm-hmm. If you can't make the difference, if you can't make this fine line where there are also thousands of people really trying their heart, and it's much harder for us, believe me, it's much, much harder because it takes you longer. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 you know, it's, it's a kind of labor of love for a couple of years, really. Yeah. So it's just, it just feels like we are very much in the wrong direction right now because people don't understand that whatever happens, we need someone to actually do the work with their hands, you know? Yeah. Uh, and and it's, I guess it's because of, again, this disconnect of oh, well, how things function. I've always wanted to do something for the age of plastic that will be helpful to you. As of this series, you can now go and download a template from my website. That will have a handy form you can copy and paste into an email to any company who you want to ask to use less plastic. It could be your favourite supermarket, fashion brand, your local cafe. This is an easy copy and paste, fill in the gaps that mean it's relevant to the business you want to contact. Easy. More details at iamandreafox.co.uk. Do you think like because uh, you know I I've I've bashed the big brands before, um, but I've never stepped inside a factory where clothes are made. Do you think that would be helpful? Do you think for people in the space? I do. I really do. And I uh, I I when I say this, I don't say it. Believe me, I really don't say it as someone who is trying to critique anyone because I do again have 
a full understanding that for me, this was something just given, you know, I've been born there. I'm much closer to the supply chain. I know how things work. It took me 10 years to actually understand. And, you know, I've had uh, my own factory for a while now. Uh, factory is a, is a big word, more like a workshop. But when you see how things function, it just you understand how everything does come into life. Uh, but I do feel like a lot of people need to go to see a factory in their own life and talk to technicians and seamstresses and just try and understand what's behind this labor, what's behind those people. Because, you know, in my uh, personal experience and opinion, um, these are very simple people. When I say simple, in the nicest possible way, simple, who just want to live a normal, decent life, which they are not given because an industry has decided that, you know, we need to make profits because on top of their labor. Yeah. And this is the reality. This is the truth. If you go to a big factory, even in small Bulgaria, which is still one of the biggest, you know, uh, manufacturers, but still, if you just go into this like big factory with 250 people and you see those people and you realize that they're just, like you and me and every one of us, and they have families and kids that go to school and they thrive in, in the exact same principles as you and me, it changes your perspective entirely, yeah. you know? And a lot of times I also see how people, um, you know, besides the, the brands, the big brands bashing, they also bash factory owners. And I'm very um, sort of wary to do that because, you know, most of the time, factory owners are also just one kind of tiny... Yeah, cog in the massive wheel, yeah. Exactly, part of the map, somewhere yeah. there, trying to actually do the same. Because I just feel like this great disconnect that's been happening for a very long time needs to sort of, uh, I don't know, really kind of reconnect. And we yeah. really don't need awareness uh, in terms of we used to we used to i'm not saying it didn't do the work but i feel like it's about time that uh, it's the next the step images, it's just the next step yeah you know? apart from the images on social media and people holding signs and, and you know hashtags and everything these are the people who need to have things improved in their lives because yeah. honestly I'm, I'm seeing it myself and i think a lot of people working in supply chain will agree with me that there is a huge demographic crisis coming because if you're like 15, why would you want to be a seamstress? Why on earth would you want to do something where your labor and, and your life is going to be pretty much treated as less of a human? You know, you will be paid really badly yeah. for 12 hours work after learning for five years or more. Why, why would anyone want to do this? And, and, you know, saying that a lot of people say, yeah, but maybe machines will do that, you know, somewhere in the future. How is this any of an argument? We don't have that now. Mm. You know, we don't have machines. There is no technology right now who will, is suggesting that in the next 10 years, we'll have something of a substitute of a seamstress or a technician or anything. It's a very it's precise happening. work. Yeah. It's a very delicate labor, you know. Yeah, we have robots that cut clothes, but even that needs human hands. Mm. So why would you even suggest an argument like that, especially having all those issues right now? I don't know. I mean, I just find it a bit 
a bit strange to, you know, to ignore thousands and millions of people all over the world yeah. because of the idea that machines might as well somewhere down the line change that labor. It's just, it's just weird. Oh no, it's funny, isn't it? Like machines are going to replace us all. Well, uh, they're really, they're really not. <laughs> they're really not. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe yes. But then, you know, when we have that technology, then we can actually think of how we can, I don't know, re train these people, replace, but, you know, and there are many, many things we can do, but we are really far off that. We are not there. So it's just, it's just strange that people, I find it wild, actually, I have to be honest. (laughs) It's just a suggestion, which again, shows you this huge disconnect that happens between the reality and, you know, how people, how actually normal people perceive supply chain they just don't don't get it and that's totally fine it's for business to actually change things you know yeah so um of course there is always argument on the both sides but i just feel like um we've been arguing for too long i feel it's it's time that we move on and and do do things and we can still argue you know it yeah. doesn't it doesn't matter we can argue all the time that's that's human behavior isn't it we just yeah, argue yeah, all the time yeah, pretty much human behavior exactly <laughs> and it goes back to you know all these people who now aren't making a decent wage from those 12 hours working a skilled job after all that training all that profit is going to the top so it's exactly the thing that you flagged in that article that we need to move away from who who made my clothes to who's making profit and yeah. and and the onus needs to be on the fashion industry to change but we've sort of touched on what the fashion industry can do a little bit different i wanted to ask also ask you what you think think needs to be done differently when it comes to government that would be helpful to make fashion more sustainable yeah well you know the reality is that whatever me and you and anyone in this industry says we again you know it's very simple Uh, besides my moral compass and the fact that i'm now allowed to kill people and abuse people like beat them up or something pretty much nothing else regulates me there is no regulation that tells me you need to pay those workers oh, wow. this kind of age, uh, wage, you know. Yeah. If they're outside of the UK, there is nothing, you know. There is no frame. So Angela Merkel um, suggested, and she actually managed to pass the bill a couple of months ago. I, If I'm not wrong, I think January, but I might be wrong. So pretty much double check, yeah. Ago, um, like a frame which, which basically suggests that, that every German corporation has the responsibility, regardless where their supply chain is based, outside, you know, pretty much anywhere in the world, that they're responsible to make sure living conditions, wages, and all of those things. That's such Uh, a good idea. Yeah, I'm not wrong, to be honest, I think the French have it already in place. But that's my point is regulation is the key. Whatever we do, however we do, there will be five companies doing it right and and doing the right things and five companies doing things the right way just because, you know, they need to sell. So there's a nice fine line there, but it's true. You know, pretty much no one needs like, um, you know, great certifications, but a lot of people do it because it sells the product better. Yeah. Just for the sake of example. So um, regulation is is crucial and it's where things begin pretty much because, again, you know, free market. Free market is a space where 
we all compete with different products with different threads. We, we, we don't exist in a perfect competition. So pretty much every company out there is in this field where we're trying to throw some stuff in the air, products, <laughs> services, whatever. Yeah. And we compete who does better, you know? And in, on the way, the only thing, the only frame we kind of do this in is basically government regulation, the mm. law, you know, which says you can't kill your workers, you mm. can't eat them up or something like that. But only if you are in the UK, if your supply chain is somewhere there and you don't see it, then it's okay. You know, <laughs> that's mm. pretty much that's pretty much what's been happening. That's well, so well, twisted, isn't it? That's so when you when you put twisted, it like that. But, of course, yeah. that's how it works. Like, of course, like there's no governmental onus, but it would make so much sense. Yeah, I mean, listen, I mean, what happened to Rana Plaza eight years yeah. ago? This is a factory that didn't make anything for. I, I, I'm probably wrong. Maybe they did something tiny, but in general, their whole production was completely for export and they were working for if i'm not wrong as well top shop or or primark or someone you know some of the big some of the big, the big players yeah who doesn't have any responsibility whatsoever that this happened so you know and and this is eight years now and this continue this continues to happen not in the same scale thanks god but you know it, it it's a it's an ongoing thing so what have all of those campaigns that pretty much made some consumers aware that there is these issues, and that's great. But I just feel like it's the next step. You know, is, we we just need to do something about it because it's going to keep on happening. And yeah. you know what? I'm I'm not going to be surprised seeing the incident with Rana Plaza happen again now, eight mm. years, nine years later. And I really hope. Of course, I uh, with yeah. all my heart, I hope I don't. None of us see that. Yeah, it gives me chills thinking about it. Yeah, but the fact that you don't have the regulations, you don't, you really don't have the regulation. Non corporation or company based in the UK right now is responsible for anything that happens in their supply chain if it's outside of the UK. Mm. To be honest, I'm not sure if they're responsible if if it happens even in the UK, since that most of them are outsourcing. So yeah. it's like a partner, you know, it's not their problem, it's not their business. Mm. So I feel like that is this frame should should definitely be working. And uh, even Angela Merkel's frame, which I mentioned earlier, is not ideal because okay. it also has some holes in it, but it's still a start, something, you know, yeah. which can introduce corporations with huge penalties if they don't follow this very basic human rights. We're talking about human rights, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. The- the people you make money out of, make sure they earn a living wage. It's so it's ridiculous. Only, it's just so so basic, you know. Yeah. It's just so basic, and and just sometimes when we talk, when we have all these conversations, I just, you know, sometimes I just want to scream at the void and say, oh, well, you know what? It's so simple. The things that we need to do are so simple, and basically, just we need to accept the fact that we can't make huge profits mm-hmm. on top of other people who are abused. That's pretty much it. We can still make money. We can still make money, maybe not the same amount, but we can still make money. In in the end of the day, like my friend Aja and partner Aja says, you know, if if corporations, especially like in fashion, are humans, they will be psychopaths. And that's kind of like 100% true. She's right, you know? Like looking, looking at their behavior and the way everything kind of functions, 
it is a little bit psychotic, isn't it? Yeah, you would not want to be a friend with that yeah, with, with those know. brands if they were real people. They would be psychopaths. You're so right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I wanted to also ask, touch on materials. Now, I have to say, I highly recommend that people go to your website, the Laura Jean website and your socials to find out how silk is made because I have no idea. But I wanted to touch on sort of the sustainability around materials um, and what your sort of opinions are on things like re- recycled polyester, for example. See, the same argument that you have about brands bad or good or this you know binary which doesn't lead us anywhere is valid for for fabrics so they are very like i always try to say to people there are very few things you need to know and understand and apart from that it's just really brand's responsibility to take care of you know their materials the materials that they make their clothes from it's not your responsibility but what you need to understand is that there is no such a thing as good and bad fabrics yeah of course plastics is awful and we all know that but you know what polyester has it's 70 percent of the fabrics out there 70 percent. this wow. is huge it's everywhere mm. And, uh, you know, as much as I would want to say, I want to see it banned completely and I don't use it myself in our supply chain. I, I never, I just don't see, you know, I can't design with something that is so, I don't know, um, it feels fake when you touch it as well, you know, <laughs> and it's just so unpleasant to the body, but that's just me. I'm not, I don't want to impose this on, on anyone else. My point is, I would love to see it banned and forbidden and all of those things, but it's not the reality. So when something is not the reality, I feel like the best thing to do is just manage it, get the best out of it. So, you know, um, recycle polyester, polyester in general, there are some good threats of this material. And if it gets repurposed and if you teach people how to actually take care of it and just make sure that, you know, they just pretty much wash it with, you know, in a in a bag or use a core ball or something so they can kind of save um the the microplastics. Mm. You can utilize it, let's put it that way. But also um polyester is extremely durable. You know, it doesn't it doesn't biodegrade. It's gonna be here forever. So in, in that sense recycled polyester is a bit of a nonsense. You can't you can't really kind of recycle it. You dance down cycle or upcycle if we have to be completely correct. And I do realize it's a bit of semantics, but it's the truth. And it's again, part of this, you know, greenwashing conversation. Oh, you know, we use this like, you know, H&M, their machine recycled 2000 tons or something, yet they make 2000 tons for 10 seconds or something. So I think it's really (laughs) important that you have this fine uh, lines, but um, I mean, Pretty much the same argument with silk. Oh, but you kill animals. You know, this is like, it's really horrible because you kill animals. And then you kind of, it's very hard to explain to people because most of the information on the internet is actually not professional. It's not based on deep scientific research. Science is totally ignored. This is just some people, mainly like really clever and well-educated people, but with assumptions, which are not true. Because, you know, ethical arguments have always two sides of the things. And for instance, with the silk, which is my main material, and I've chose to work with it because, you know, I achieve the comfort I want, but also it's probably the most durable natural fiber out there. So if you have a silk dress and you take care of it properly, it's going to stay with you forever, really. Like, but also it will biodegrade and it will 
Of course, there is other problems, but my point is, again, you know, very simple. You just say, oh, but you kill animals making silk, and you're like, but these animals actually don't exist in nature. They've been domesticated 500 years ago. And when you, uh, you know, it, it doesn't exist without humans. Yeah. But and it you, wouldn't exist you know, if you if you would tr- set no. it free from a silk. That that no, is not no, a thing that this no, animal could do. It no, wouldn't survive for more than a, no. half an hour. It would never. No, it can't. It's just it's just blind. It doesn't you know? Mm. And I've actually had um, you know quite funny experience with the brand who was suggesting that you know their silk is much more ethical because their um, the cocoons and you know the bombix mori they use is not being killed. Uh, by being boiled and i i asked them but how do you know that so basically they were suggesting the the, the um, uh you know the worm doesn't suffer yeah and i said how do you know that because yeah. the worm actually doesn't have central nervous system so it's a big scientific argument from years and years and years mm. they felt pain at all yeah. and most of the time scientifically sure they don't they don't feel pain so yeah. it's kind of like how do you how do you understand that and they were like no but we know you know they don't like they can hear and they can see and i was it, it's humorous isn't it like people actually believe in marketing messages to that extent where they ignore any scientific logic yeah so yeah uh, i mean that's pretty much valid for every material out there yeah. yes of course there is the bad things the dyes, you know, the sourcing, there might be always abuse in the supply chain. And this is about it for cotton, for wool, for linen, for pretty much everything out there. Some of them do have better sustainability threats. Some of them have worse sustainability threats. But um, if you know enough, and if all of your opinions are based on scientific research, you actually can do the best of it. You know, yeah. I, I don't, we never use polyester unless we need to do something pleated because... Yeah. Pleats are done by heat transfer, so therefore you need something that won't let it go, like natural materials. Yeah. Just for the sake of example. So, but you know, I really, I'm, I'm really out of this binary conversations because they're so not true. Yeah. And you see it all the time on infographics, on you know people talking about it because it's social media and because it sparks some kind of like interest and get likes and everything like that. And that's great. It's not a problem unless you actually put more false narratives into something which is already faulty, you know? Yeah. And it's so difficult, isn't it? Because like you say, those infographics and things, that's that makes it quite easy. But the reality is it's difficult and there's good and bad points, as you've already said, about every single material. So it's really up to you, the individual consumer, the individual brand to make that choice, right? And also try and just kind of like see through beyond um, the marketing messages Mm. because the marketing messages are, and, and, you know, this is where the argument of ethical marketing also kicks in. And there's a lot of people doing great job with this. I really commend them all because this is basically the major problem that everything, you know, consumers are, it's not their fault, you know, consumers just see something that, oh my God, but silk is so bad, you know, because you kill all those animals. Mm. And they imagine that the worm, which is, you know, a lot created creature and, you know, it doesn't really exist in nature is, is, and I'm not saying there is no, I'm really not saying there's no ethical argument in this, but, you know, sometimes 
like everything else in life, you kind of have the pros and cons and you really see, because actually silk, especially the silk fiber, is perhaps the most innovative fiber out there. You know, there is a, the Americans right now are making such huge um, innovations with silk fibers that um, most probably in 10 years time, if we have the will from governments, your veggies will come wrapped in silk um, cover. Yeah, wow. they're American. It's it's insane, isn't it? They are a, a, the best substitute for plastic. Wow. Because the natural material, the silk protein has the ability to form with nature as mm. how it forms in, you know, in the natural process. It kind of becomes a cocoon. So just imagine a protein where you combine with water. I don't want to make this scientific confusion, <laughs> but... And it just wraps around things yeah. and it preserves them. That's so just amazing. imagine if you scale this, you can completely eliminate plastics. Yeah. But to know this, you actually have to read tons of research and get to the professors who are not on social media, you know, professors yeah. working this. They are not on social media. They don't spend their time tweeting and doing things. Of course, they do exist there, but you kind of have to... Yeah. find your way to this information and it's difficult that's why i'm very vocal about these things because i feel like a lot of people are like oh my god you're right but yeah. you know they just don't have the source for information so i'm very wary of blaming consumers in general it's, it's not their thing you know completely it, completely it's not their fault yeah and i mean i could talk to you all day but we are nearly at yeah. the end of our time i have two questions for you laura so first up and we always ask our guests their favourite non-single-use plastic item. As we've said, there's binary, good and bad isn't really helping us. So plastic is a good material. It's going to be with us. Like you say, polyester is probably going to be making, you know, a lot of clothes for years to come. But what would your sort of item in your life that is made of plastic that you're grateful for, what would that be? Oh, my God, I never even thought about this. <laughs> uh, you know what? Because I pretty much, I don't know, it's everywhere, isn't it? It uh, is. It, it's everywhere. I'm very mindful of, of this, but I swear I don't even, like, I don't know. I guess my phone cover. Yeah. This is probably, you know. Plastic, uh, because yeah. we are really, I'm, I'm really uh, kind of mindful. We try to always, like, you know, don't use single-use plastics and never use anything like that. But I think on top of my head, this is probably going to be the cover because it kind of saves my phone and, you know, most of my work is on my phone. So yeah. I'll probably say that. That what is a good one. I say usually, by the way. We've had so many interesting ones. Um, someone said uh, a, a little sort of plastic spoon that you use to eat kiwi. We've had like cars and laptops come up quite a lot. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's been quite a lot of that. I think I probably I say my record collection because that's yeah. essentially vinyl. But I, but it's like non single use stuff. I'm the same as you. I try so hard to make sure it doesn't come into the house. And yeah, yeah I look around and I'm like, well, this oops, this came free with our Soda Stream. I don't want it, but it's in the house now, so we use it. You yeah. know, makeup, all these things. Yeah, I'm trying to replace. Yeah, yeah. I use these things for such a long time. Yeah. I don't like if I sh probably if I share like if I change my phone or something. But yeah. it's a very interesting question. I never thought about this. So I, yeah, and it tries to be the sort of things that we've discussed today. Like the binary thing is kind of a bit of a nonsense, and I don't. We always joke, lovers not haters. You know, like want to bring everyone along on this sort of like more sustainable journey. Okay, final question for you then before I let you go. Your environmental hero, please. Oh. Who do you look up to? You know, I I think 
only one person that I really look up to and just always will listen because he kind of has the same take as, as what I feel the answer is, is probably David Attenborough, I think. It's just because he never also puts this argument like being, you know, again, this binary, really bad, really good. You know, it's it's always like, I don't know, can you say he's an environmental hero? You can, right? Absolutely. He is yeah. a very popular one. We've had him a lot. And I love asking this question because sometimes it's like the big ones and we, you know, he's had such uh, mass appeal. And then other times it'll be like people that I've not heard of before. I think that's lovely. It just goes to show yeah. You can't, not everyone can be David Attenborough, but everyone can maybe do do their bit. Yeah, definitely. I, the other thing I was going to say, by the way, was Jason Hickel, although he's a bit more of an economist and he's like very involved into, maybe you can use this one. Well, Jason Hickel is quite interesting. I know that name. Yes, he writes yeah. quite a lot in the space, right? Yes, but he's an economist and he did some really great work, especially around the concept of big growth. So uh, I don't know. I'm not sure, though, he's entirely environmental because he talks more, much more about the economic sort of reflection of all of this. And also from like, um, you know, human perspective, but it's more of an economist rather than that's why I said David Attenborough, because I really do. I really, really, you know, I really most of the people out there talking about it are very to the both ends. Yeah. And I just feel like this is not. We need to find a way to, you know, everything is in the balance. It's always been like that. So, you know, just like David Attenborough said, human population will reach, you know, this point where we're just going to stop, mm. I mean, growing. So it's kind of like, this is where we're at. And now we need to find a way to mitigate. Yeah. And pretty much my feeling about fashion, we have been, we are this massive industry and we are at this breaking point where we really need to, start mitigating and managing the processes so we can improve because in in other in other words if we don't it's going to be a big crash i feel absolutely dreamy knits dreamy silks available on Laura Jean's website. I am definitely going to be putting those on my wish list. Uh, LauraJean.com is the website. As always, the link's in the show notes. Just such a lovely chat and I really feel isn't it interesting how we are switching the conversation. We need to keep pushing this conversation forward and being realistic about the realities of certain materials. I just found it fascinating chatting to Laura. I could have chatted to her all day. Do go and check out the website. Make sure you're following them on social media. Loads of stuff on their socials as well. Um, delving into all the materials they do and don't use and why. A few shout outs then before we get on to today's eco life hack. Love when you get in contact with me. Alexander Baines got in touch to say really loving the podcast. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Uh, he's heard that fact that plastic was originally created so that we'd stop using ivory. It's come up quite a few times on episodes of the Age of Plastic podcast. Fun fact that I didn't know that Alexander got in touch to tell me about. The first billiard balls that were made from plastic were known to explode as the mixture was so unstable. Well, we've come on a little way from that, haven't we? Thank you as well to the lovely Cass, who is uh, listening from Brisbane in Australia. She shared the Age of Plastic podcast on her socials, Captive Media Australia. Really appreciate that. Thank you so much. I know you're enjoying the podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this episode as well. Let me know. If you want to get in contact, all the contact details where you are listening right now. Time for today's eco life hack and it is from today's guest as well yeah 
I've hardly had to work at all this episode. Thank you so much for Laura Jean for suggesting Give Your Best. Uh, you heard us speak about it. It's a way to donate your clothes, which are still in good condition, that maybe you were thinking about giving to charity or maybe putting on a clothing swap site or something like that. You can donate these pre-loved clothes to refugee women who don't just need them, but actually choose them. Turning donating into gifting. Uh, GiveYourBest.uk is the website to go to. As always, it'll be in the show notes. I'm so sorry I have to say that a million times this episode. I need to get better at just saying it once. Coming up next time on the Age of Plastic podcast, we're going across the Atlantic Ocean again and going to be chatting to Lauren Groper from Repurpose about actually disposable single-use items, actually compostable. Uh, we talk about so much innovation in this space on this episode. I'm really glad to have had some time with Lauren. That is coming up on the next episode of the Age of Plastic podcast. Until then, don't forget to keep washing out your recycling. I'll see you next time.